Good morning, guys. Great to see you. Uh, great to be, have the opportunity to open God's Word. Just kind of as we get into this, though, I just want to make a quick kind of ask to you uh, as your pastor. Um, we, have some, we have some needs in our church community that uh, we just want to make known to you, opportunities uh, for you to serve. And we've always said that, that those that are probably most healthy in the life of our church are, are receiving the good news, they're being discipled, but they're also giving themselves away through serving. Uh, we have a few specific needs on Sunday mornings that, that we would love to put before you and ask if you would be willing to serve. Uh, those needs are uh, with New City Kids. So, so I don't know if you know this or not, but we, we, have, we have about 165 children under the age of 18 in this church. It's a lot of kids, isn't it? And we believe uh, that it is our job as the covenant partners of this church to all of us care for the kids, whether you have your own kids or not. Uh, if you, we need about 10 to 12 volunteers to kind of ramp up for the fall and, and be able to offer uh, children's ministry uh, to our, our young people. And, uh, and I just want to put that before you. And, and the ask is this, is that you serve once a month uh, for one of the services at New City Church. Uh, so you don't even have to miss church. It's a great opportunity for you to connect and disciple our young people, and we've got a great uh, ministry there that I want to put before you. If you're if you're interested in that, uh, you can email Kelly. Her email's up on the screen. I won't even think you're on TikTok if you do it right now. Okay, that was a joke. I, man, y'all are a tough crowd. We got cake out there. How can you be upset? Um, so uh, so you can do that right now. Also, there are uh, some needs with with being ushers and greeters. Uh, we have lots of new folks coming into the life of New City Church. And we want to continue to make this a welcoming place for new people to hear about Jesus and get connected to the life of the church. You can email Sherry about that, or you can put on a Connect card and, uh, and take it out to the engagement counter or anything like that. So uh, everybody get it? Got it. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Well, we're, we're digging into the, the Sermon on the Mount that we've been in um, for, for uh, a few months now. We've gone through the Beatitudes, and Jesus has called us to live as salt and light as an identity and then now we come up on this text where it seems like there were some people that were misinterpreting what Jesus had been saying, how Jesus had been living, and what he had been doing with his disciples to such a degree that they thought that maybe he came to do something different than what the Old Testament called uh, believers in the one true God to do, uh, which was to adhere to the, the moral law, as Brandon said. Um, and and what, what we're looking at today and what I'm going to teach on uh, is actually very crucial. It is a crucial sermon because uh, without this understanding of the place of the law, and what I mean by the law is the moral law, which is kind of summed up in the Ten Commandments. Uh, we believe that the, the civil, civil law is kind of obsolete now because uh, God's people are no longer predominantly a nation. Uh, and the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Jesus uh, because his blood speaks a better word than the blood of lambs and goats, right? Um, and so, so we're talking about the moral law here. What's summed up in the Ten Commandments. And, and uh, what we need to know about this is how the Old Testament fits into uh, a, a New Testament Christianity, if you will, and how the Bible fits together and what that means and what those, those, those implications are for us. The scribes and the Pharisees of the day were the religious leaders at the time in the Jewish community. Uh, they were kind of the guys that set the tone for God's people. They were the experts. They were the, the, the people that, that, uh, that believers looked to. Uh, for interpretations on difficult matters, and, and they, were the, they were the ones that uh, people were, you know, podcasting their sermons, right? They were listening to how they interpreted God's word. But the problem is, is that apparently they had perverted the law of God by interpreting it, interpreting it to only uh, to mean external behavior modifications and adherence to the law. 
Um, and Jesus comes to say, and, and he'll say this in, in the sermons following this, he'll say, you have heard it said, you know, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, uh, a man who has lustful intent in his heart has already committed adultery. So Jesus is all about taking the law of God on its face value from an external point of view and taking it to the heart. And Jesus kind of ties the whole thing together today as he's going to continue preaching this for us. But the religious leaders of the day were bent on a self-fulfillment of the law, a self-made righteousness, which forced them to ultimately deny the motives of their own hearts because they had to achieve it on their own, or on the other end of the spectrum to be in despair because life felt so hopeless. It reminds me of a situation that happened with one of our children that will remain anonymous uh, to protect their their preacher kidness in my in my life, but it's a great story. One evening at bedtime, um, I was putting uh, this particular child to bed, and Megan was out that night. She was probably partying or something. I'm not sure, but um, <clears throat> she was out. It's probably with a discipleship group, and uh, and I was putting this particular child to bed, and the doorbell rang. It's like 8:30 at night. I'm like, well, that's interesting. Who's ringing the doorbell at 8:30? Unless it's one of those. Weird Amazon delivery times, you know. And so I'm, I, I go downstairs and say, hold up. I'm go, I go downstairs, and then I'm confronted with a parent and a child that, of our next-door neighbor. And the, the parent proceeds to tell me something that one of my children had said to their child. And it kind of shocks me because it's pretty uncharacteristic for this particular child. But I've been a parent long enough to know that you shouldn't be surprised by anything, Right. <laughs> But then I also know what's in and of myself when I'm having a bad day. And so I go upstairs to confront this child, and I, I assure the parent and the child that we will be in touch. And I go upstairs to talk with this particular child, only to not be able to find them. I'm like, where in the world are they? I'm like looking around all over the place. And then finally, I look under the bed. And this particular child is under the bed. They see me, and they start bust, bursting into tears and weeping gnashing of teeth. It's awful. And I, I look down and I say, hey, what's going on? And this particular child said, daddy, I did a really bad thing. And I'm afraid that you're not going to love me anymore. And I'm afraid that, that, that I'm not going to have friends anymore. I just feel so bad about what I've done. And I bring this child up and I embrace this child. I kiss this child and I pray with this child. And I, and I just kind of interact with the situation. At that point, this particular child did not need the law. This child was crushed. And in fact, this child didn't see a future that involved the grace of God in it. Many of us, when the law of God crushes us and we realize that we've been found out, we can't hide it anymore, that we've done a bad thing. We feel like God will not love us anymore because we imagine a future without the grace of God in it. And so that night, we, we, went, we went over to the next door neighbor's house, and, and uh, there was an apology, and there was, they hugged it out. It was great. But how many times do we do the exact same thing? We hide under our proverbial bed when we realize that we've blown it, not imagining a future that involves the grace of God in it. You see, it's God's will when we see our sins that we should hide under our beds, that we should weep over our sin because when the law does its isolating work in our hearts, we imagine a future where we've blown it and there's no opportunity for grace. 
The scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day lived every day of their lives like this. Grace was not an option in their religious code. The law was the only way. They would look at the obedience that Jesus requires, that the law requires, and they would do their best to accomplish that, and they would hide what didn't fit. Therefore, the conclusion about Jesus' ministry was this. He must be relaxing the law of God. Look at who he's hanging out with. Look at what they're talking about. Yet the truth was he was not. He was expanding the interpretation. In fact, he believed more about the law, not less about the law. It reminds me of this quote from the great reformer Martin Luther. He says that the, that the law is for the proud and the gospel is for the broken hearted. Friends, today, here's our big idea. We need both the law and the gospel to grow up into Christ. Amen? That's what we need. So I wanna, what I want to try to do now is I want to show you how those two fit together in our everyday, ordinary journeys with Jesus. Um, and so what we're going to look at is this, is how the law and the gospel reorient us from self to God. So whether you're like my kid that night or like the Pharisees, we all have self-protective measures to attempt to shield us from the sting and the consequences of disobeying the law. But all of those strategies are based on a false assumption. It is a crucial false assumption. And that assumption is this, is that we are alone in this world and left to spiritually fend for ourselves. In fact, the very last thing that Jesus says in Matthew 28, 20, before he ascends to heaven is what? I am with you. Thank you. I'm with you always until the end of the day. And so that means that if you're in Christ, you should never imagine a day that Jesus is not with you, no matter what you've gotten yourself into. Never a day that we should imagine that. And so, uh, so here's kind of, if you're a note taker, I'll kind of tell you where I'm going. Uh, the first thing we're going to look at is the law, how the law dismantles this idea of getting to God on our own. The second thing we want to look at is the gospel and how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, restores our hope by showing us how Jesus fulfills the law's demands. And the third thing we're going to look at is this idea of what it looks like to pursue spirit-empowered obedience in Jesus' name uh, that flows from his power. Um, so let's dig into that. Let me ask you this. When was the last time that the word of God just found you out and crushed you? When was the last time that you read God's word and you just stopped and you were just arrested and said, God, I do not believe that. I don't live that way. When was the last time that the law of God crushed you? Do you let the law of God crush you? Or do you try to shift it and change its meaning so that you can obey it on your own and not be desperate for God's grace? The last time that the law crushed me was last night. So reading Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This week, I, it, was, it was like the... First week we all had with all of our kids in the house and summer break and I had a more relaxed work schedule so we spent a lot of time together. And I can look back and see three or four occasions where I really intentionally provoked my children to anger because I was disappointed in their obedience. Can anybody relate to that in here this morning? When was the last time the law of God crushed you. you. Do you let it crush you? So last night I'm in my office, I'm thinking about how am I going to preach on this? I'm wrapping up my sermon and I'm just sitting there in a puddle of tears. Why? 
because I have not led my children the way that they need to be led. I need God's grace to be able to disciple and lead my children. And I need strong law in my life to remind me of when I blow it so that I will seek his face. Friends, we need God's word to be God's word. We don't need to dilute God's word. We don't need to alter God's word to fit our cultural context. We need God's word to be God's word. If we have cheap law, we have to have cheap grace too because we don't need forgiveness for what we don't think we're guilty of. We need the fullness of the truth about ourselves to receive and embody who Jesus really is for us. To put it simply, the whole Sermon on the Mount is about dismantling this idea that we can ever get to God on our own. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Let me read this again in light of what I've just said to you. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The, the law was the, was the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. The prophets were all the prophetic, minor, and major prophet, uh, prophetic writings that followed that. He says, I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them, which tells us that the law of God is something that is to be accomplished, not to just be considered. He says, I've come to fulfill it. I've come to finish it like we sing about. He says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, until the end of time, until judgment day, not an iota, not a dot, not a, not a jot or tittle, not, not even one little dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, think about that today. Think about what people, um, whatever your cultural hot button is that you're super frustrated with now, think about the temptation to alter the word of God and what the scripture warns about. Least in the kingdom of heaven when you alter the word of God. He says, but whoever does these, whoever does the law and then teaches others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I find it so interesting that there's kind of this continuum. It's not about just considering and doing the law but it's also about teaching the law. I, not, not many of us think about ourselves as those that are called to teach the law. We don't think about uh, the law being on our lips as we share fellowship with other believers, as we live as salt and light distinct in this world. But in the Great Commission, does not it talk about teaching? Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Not just teaching them to obey what's comfortable, but teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. He's called us to live that kind of with distinctiveness. He says, but whoever teaches them and does them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, so he doesn't throw these guys out with the bathwater, he says, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, if there were people that were going to try to get to God on their own, these guys are the best at it. That's what he's saying. So I know we, we throw these guys under the bus all the time, right? The, oh, you're such a Pharisee, right? You know, But these guys were really going after it. They just didn't have a category for grace. In verses 17 and 18, Jesus says that everything he's going to teach us will come from the foundation of the Old Testament. The New Testament is not a replacement for the Old, uh, Old Testament. Jesus has come to fulfill the distortions, not discard the strength of God's demands in our lives. In verses 19 20, the second thing he says is that while his teaching is in complete harmony with the Old Testament scriptures, it's in complete disharmony 
with the scribes and the Pharisees' interpretations and responses to it. He's come to fulfill the law. So, so here's the check for us today. We're all trying to get to God. And we're in that kind of Pharisee gap. What we do is we turn the law of God up like a ladder and we try to climb to heaven on it, like the Tower of Babel or something, right? We are all born with this magnetic pull to be reunited with our Father in heaven. We all feel it. We all feel the gap. But we have a tendency to assume that the only way to get there is with our own resources. And, because, and we do this because we are prone to serve ourselves because of the fall. And we take the law and we make it about ourselves instead of about God. So how, how is it that we will check our inner Pharisee? How do we become aware of when we are distorting and using the word of God to benefit ourselves? It usually happens for me when you take one part of God's law and you make it the main thing. You make it the main thing in isolation from the whole counsel of God's word. So what is it for you this morning? What is it that is your shtick, the thing that just gets under your skin? If you're anything like me, you've got one, all right, if you're honest. What is your go-to for self-justification? When you see other people doing it, you're like, I just can't believe those sinners. But for you, you know, you're like, I'm good on that one, but you're failing all these other things over here, right? What is that for you this morning? Is it your work ethic? Those millennials just don't know how to hold a job. They don't know how to work hard. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that, right? Is it your generosity? Look how much we give away. Is it your endless compassion? We're always just serving other people. Is it your kid's performance? Oh, look at that report card. Johnny did good this year. We must be good parents. Is it your marriage? Or is it your politics? I hope not. Where is it that you, bl- you are blind to your own failings because you are so locked in on the things that you get right? That is the mindset of a Pharisee. Whatever it is, let me tell you what the Holy Spirit wants to do this morning. He wants to dismantle your functional Savior. He wants to crush it with the law of God and give you something so much better, which is Jesus fulfilling the law on your behalf. For me, for me, my inner Pharisee comes out in a lot of places. I'm not afraid to tell you because Jesus is my righteousness. It comes out against spiritual leaders that that have been in authority in my life that blow it. People that I trusted to lead me with this unrealistic expectation, to be honest, that hid their sin and blew it and they get found out and now everybody in the world knows about how awful they were. It just, it just, in my flesh, I think I tend to think, how could you do this? You preach about this. How could you do this? But I forget what lives inside of me when I say that. For me, my Pharisee comes out when I'm around people who sin differently than I do. Whether it be a repulsive pride or a theological carelessness or a particular sexual immorality. But Jesus, time and time and again, shows us that the, 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 the main purpose of the law is to make us absolutely desperate for God's grace. I love what the, the essayist John Dink says about this. I'm going to read this for you. He says, cheap law weakens God's demand for perfection. And in doing so... It breathes life into the old creature in his quest for a righteousness of his own making. I mean, think about like a a mannequin in CPR. That's kind of what we're doing. Cheap law tells us that we've fallen, but hey, there's good news. 
you can get back up again. Therein lies the great heresy of cheap law. It is a false gospel and it cheapens. No, it nullifies, it voids out grace. So here's the diagnostic for us today. When you take in God's word, does it make you proud or does it make you desperate for grace? What would it look like for you to read the full dosage of the word of God and for it to make you desperate for Jesus to fulfill it on your behalf? Because then, and only then, is the law of God serving that purpose that we desperately need it to, to drive us to Jesus. The second thing we see is this. The gospel restores our hope by showing us Jesus who fulfills the law's demands. If that's the bad news, which we all need the bad news, this is the good news. Jesus comes to fulfill, which means to, to fill out, to, to tease out the implications, to press in the law. And he, and he says this in Matthew 5, 17, and this has massive implications for how we live in light of God's law. But how does Jesus fulfill the law on our behalf? Jesus fulfills the law through enduring the cross and sending the Holy Spirit for us so that the, the, the fulfillment of the law can be applied to our story, to our hearts and our lives. In order to understand what the cross really means, you have to understand what the law really demands. The, law, the, the, the cross isn't just like, hey, a, a great guy died for us. No, the cross means that a perfect God satisfied the wrath of a holy God. That's what happened on the cross because God requires perfect obedience from the heart to enjoy a perfect relationship with God. And it doesn't take us very long to see that none of us can match up to that. Galatians 4.4 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. God Jesus, because of his perfection, is the only one that didn't have to be born under the law. Because of the fall, we're all born under the law, the oppressive nature of the law, showing us that we can never get to God on our own. But Jesus was born under the law, and the reason he was born under the law was to redeem those who were under the law. We're all born under the weight of the law. We're born under the weight of something that we can never achieve with our own resources. That's how bad the, the fallen condition really is for each and every one of us. And friends, this is what has led me to give my life to preaching the good news. I'm so, I'm so desperate for you and others in our city to know that there's a different way to live. There's, there's resources outside of ourselves to satisfy the wrath of God and feel his delight and his pleasure in our lives. You know, the law of God is, is, is kind of like an MRI. My, many of you know that my wife has multiple sclerosis, and part of, the, part of the journey for us in keeping MS at bay is really discovering what's really going on. And, and, and the way that they do that in the medical field, you know, speaking that we, we had Trey up today, um, is with an MRI. It's this basically this machine that takes uh, images of your body like in slices like this, and you can't hide anything from an MRI. Many of us, if the law is like an MRI, it shows us what's really going on. The MRI shows us what's wrong, but it can never cure us. Many of us, friends, are walking around with the scan results. We know the prognosis, but that's all we've got. We're, looking, we're walking around trusting that that MRI will heal us. 
and it never will. In Christ, the amazing news is that we get his scan results instead of ours. It's, this, it's, this good, it's, it's, it's such good news that we don't have to walk around with the scan results of a broken body, of a, the scan results of, of, a, of a life that will never endure, never get to eternity, but we get his instead. Every time we go back and we get a checkup, you know, the, 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 we get the same results. It's in remission. You're good to go. You're going to live. And we, do, we get this because Jesus achieves the demands of the law through his active obedience. So each and every week when we, when we take communion, we, we take this sacrament of communion, it has two elements in it. It's got the bread and it's got the wine, or we, we have juice as well. The active obedience, what we're doing is we are celebrating the life of Jesus, the body of Jesus, the bread of, Je- the bread of life. Jesus was perfectly obedient to not only the external elements of the law that people could see, but he perfectly obeyed the law from the heart. At every turn of his life, his heart was set on the Father. Jesus did that for you, and he did that for me. Jesus not only does that, but he endures the consequences of our disobedience through his passive obedience. So not only do we take the bread, but we take the wine. He, he, endures, he endured the wrath against sinners poured out on the cross. And on the cross, our Father pours out the full measure of the wrath, of his wrath against all sin that will ever exist on the face of the planet. And he aims it straight at his son. Jesus doesn't flinch. He doesn't justify himself, but he endures because he accomplishes our salvation when he does that. And every time that we take this table, we're reflecting on that, we're reminded of that, and we're being strengthened by what Christ has done for us in the gospel. This means, friends, get this, that God has no judgment left for those that are in Christ. Did you hear that? God has no judgment left for those that are in Christ. How often do you live that way? That's why you can't sing good, good father. You think he's still pouring out his wrath on you. He has no judgment left for those that are in Christ because he squarely aimed the whole bucket of it at his son. That's the good news of the gospel. He has nothing left to do except delight in his children. Because of the cross of Christ, we can be atoned with God. You know what that word means? If you spell it out, at one. We are at one with God through Christ. We're healed. We're brought into fellowship. Galatians 3.13 says it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The cross is the best news we could hear today. Because Jesus isn't sitting at the right hand of the Father regretting what he accomplished at Calvary for us. He's not saying, how could they? No, he marvels at his work alive in us. And now by faith, we are not only forgiven of and cleansed of sin, but we also have all of the righteousness of heaven living inside of us, working out the law as we seek to obey him. This is what led Paul to say this in Philippians 3. He says, He says, I count everything as a loss. And what he was saying was his track record of righteousness, all of the things that he had done. And he could, boy, he could rattle them off, right? I mean, he really could. And he says he does this because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, for his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. 
that word, I'm not going to go there, but it's excrement. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's dung. I count them as rubbish. They're of no value to me anymore in order that I can gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, the law will never make you righteous. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is how we become free from the bondage of the law, which leads us to make the world about us. Now, if you're anything like me, you feel somewhat like a spiritual schizophrenic. And what I mean by that is you get really high when you're doing well, and you get really low when you're blowing it. And you feel just all over the map, and, and your joy in Christ depends way more on your obedience and your ability to get it done than you would ever care to acknowledge. Well, I got good news for you. You're not the only one that feels like that. Paul Bunyan, in his work, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, um, felt very much like me and you in that regard. And here's what he says about how he, he was finally able to get some light in that place. He says, every little touch would hurt my conscience. And in other words, he's always second guessing. If you're a person that's just like, you're always just introspective. Like you're on that hamster wheel, like running all day long, right? Anybody in here like that? You are highly introspective. Every little touch would hurt his conscience. That's you, right? He says, but one day as I was passing in the field, suddenly I thought of a sentence. Your righteousness is in heaven. Think about that statement. Your righteousness is in heaven. With the eyes of faith, I saw Jesus sitting at God's right hand, like the book of Hebrews tells us. And suddenly I realized, there is my righteousness. It's not here, it's there. Wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness, Paul? Where is your righteousness, Ryan? For, what was right, for that was right before him. I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame could make my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, the same today, the same forever. And he says, my chains began to fall off indeed. I felt delivered from slavery to guilt and fears. I went home rejoicing for the love and graces of God. Now I could look from myself to him. That's what the gospel enables us to do, friends. Enables us to take our eyes off of ourselves and look to him who's completed it for us. And he says, Christ is my treasure, my righteousness. Christ was my wisdom, righteousness, holiness, and salvation. That's how good the gospel is. There is no wrath left to be poured out, only delight in Christ. Isn't that good news? It's real good news. So then what, what place does the law have in our life as, as Christians? It still has a place. What is that place? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit that Jesus has left with us as he's at the right hand of the Father, carries us to completion like Philippians 1.6 says. How does he do that? He carries us to completion as we learn to walk in Spirit-powered obedience. And that means that our lives are conforming more and more to the image of Jesus, which means more and more to obedience uh, to the law. It is finished. Before you even begin the Christian life, you need to know that in Christ, it's already finished. Meaning that the law for righteousness is finished forever. It's been completed by Jesus. The law for your righteousness will never be something that God requires of you in Christ. 
Attempting to achieve your own righteousness will only dilute the real righteousness that we have in heaven. There are specifically two promises that change forever how Christians should view the law. The first one's this. The law is a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the hands. Jesus, will, he'll teach us that, trust me, in the, in the following weeks. And the second one is this. It takes a new heart to live the reality of the fulfilled law. It takes a new heart for us. There's two places in the Bible that really talk about this idea. One's in Jeremiah 31 and one's in Ezekiel 36. I'll read them both to you. Jeremiah 31, 33 says this. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's that, that's that refrain that goes from Genesis to Revelation, that, that the Lord will put his law within our hearts. And, and God is just as concerned with the heart of obedience as he is with the actions of obedience. And so he gives us this new heart, too. Listen to what Ezekiel 36 says. He says, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone, the one that seeks to be righteous on its own but never can. And it's hardened because of that. And he says, I'll give you a heart of flesh, a heart that's tender, a heart that's soft toward the things of the Lord. Able to be crushed by the law. A hard heart can't be crushed by the law. It's so calloused, it's so hard. But a soft heart, a tender heart can be. He says, I'll put my spirit within you and I will cause you by the power of the spirit to walk in my statutes, in my law. And be careful to obey my rules. God has sent the Holy Spirit into the hearts of his people to remedy the age-old problem of having been circumcised in the flesh, having been baptized, but not be circumcised in the heart, right? The Pharisees assumed that the law assumed more and more obedience. But what Jesus seems to be emphasizing is deeper and deeper obedience do you see the difference? How? Because God has fulfilled the demands of the law. Perfect obedience from the heart. In our place, in the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself lives inside of us to bear witness to the fact that we are perfectly righteous. That is what the Holy Spirit is reminding us of. Because we forget it every single day, don't we? We turn the law up and start to try climbing that ladder. Our righteousness is in heaven. We know, friend, you no longer have to fear the law. The law has, has done its crushing work. We no longer have to fear it. We can invite it in because it's changing us. It's conforming us to that righteousness that we have in heaven. It now brings conviction and it brings comfort. It no longer brings condemnation to those that are in Christ. Isn't that good news? So conviction and comfort are things that we should invite as Christians. I'll just close with this story. For years, um, especially as newlyweds, Megan and I had... Uh, pretty scrappy furniture in our house. Some of you can relate to that. Furniture that came from this person, that aunt and uncle, that, that house that her dad renovated and they were going to throw it in the dumpster. And he's like, hey, I bet my daughter would like that. Um, <laughs> so we ended up with this green chair in our room. And it was one of those like double, but it was like a, it was, it was like puke green. It was like, it was, we, but we, it was comfortable. The color didn't really go with anything, but we kept it in our house I don't know, seven years? It, it, it stayed for a long time. And that chair became, that chair became known as the chair of discipline for the kids. So anytime that things were getting out of hand in the house, you would, you'd hear this probably once a day, meet me at the green chair. <laughs> and so we'd go in, you know, to the green chair, and we'd 
We'd have, Megan and I'd have time to cool off a little bit, you know, build our game plan because none of us really have a game plan, right, when we discipline our kids. We're, we're walking in there thinking, okay, what am I going to do? How can I honor Jesus with this? You know, and hopefully, hopefully I will. And sometimes it was a timeout. Sometimes it was a, it was a talk and a, and a prayer, and sometimes it was a spanking, right? And, um, and, and, and so what, what, I tended, what I tend to think about the, the memories of our kids' green chair was that this green chair is going to surface like in therapy sessions as they get older. And anytime they see a green chair, they're just going to want to burn it, you know. Like, but you know what began to happen uh, in, our, in our family is that anytime, anytime that um, a kid had a, a really bad dream, a nightmare, or there was a really bad storm, or, or we had a child that was sick, you know where they wanted to go? The green chair. Why, why would they want to go to a place that such wrath had been poured out on them, right? It's because discipline, when it comes from, 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 from the Lord, uh, connects us to the Father's heart and connects us to love, same way that it does with parents. And so we found that that chair uh, was a place of conviction and comfort. And friends, I, I would invite you to consider the fact that the law of God in your life, if you're a Christian, is, is, has served two purposes, conviction and comfort in your soul and in your heart. And so as you think about that and we turn to this table today, um, I want to invite you to ask and consider, uh, how is the law of God convicting me uh, and how is it comforting me because of what Jesus has done for me? So consider those things as we pray together now. Father, I thank you for, um, for your word. I thank you um, that we... Um, can have both strong law, that your word can stand on its own, that you don't need us to alter it, you don't need us to soften it, you don't need us to change it, you just need us to speak it. And Father, I, I thank you, I thank you, Father, that it crushes unbelievers, that it shows them that they are condemned without Jesus. Father, if that were not for the, for, if, that, if that wasn't the case in my life, I would have never looked for Jesus. I would have never turned my face toward him if I thought that I could do it on my own. But your law, it crushes us. For some of us in this room today, Father, we, f- we feel what it's like to be under the law. We feel condemned by it. And, Lord, I pray that it would be your kindness leading my friends to repentance today through that crushing weight of the law as we see that we don't match up to what you require. Father, for my friends in this room that are feeling a sense of conviction yet comfort, because we realize that you have no wrath, you have no judgment left to pour out because it's all on Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would learn to relate to your word, to your law in a new way, with these new hearts that we have, that we would welcome conviction, Lord, that we would welcome this idea that you desire to change us more and more to the image of Jesus. And Father, as we turn to this table today, Lord, I pray that it would be a reminder of what you require and what Jesus has done for us. And I pray that our hearts would be filled with delight and joy as we reflect on that today. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.